Welcome back, everybody, to the Cyberware Podcast. My name's Nathan Sloniker, your resident expert on all things cybersecurity here at Minnesota State University, Mankato. And today I'm joined with Ham again. Dude, it's so great to be back in the studio once again, as always. Today, we do have an extended episode going on featuring a special guest. In this episode, Nathan sits down with an industry expert, Brad Ammerman, who works in the field of ethical hacking. Yes. This week, as you said, Brad Ammerman, we had a great conversation about hacking in general. Brad himself is a penetration tester, if you are familiar with what that is. I think we've covered it just a little bit. Why don't you tell the folks at home what it's all about? Yeah. So with hacking, we have ethical hacking, we have unethical hacking. Ethical hacking is legal with permission and stuff. And then unethical, obviously illegal, under the table, bad. So Brad himself is an ethical hacker and we he came in and just shared a bunch of stories and some good advice for all of our listeners here. Today, Nathan Brad will walk through everything you need to know about the world of hacking. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what we're about to talk about today, folks. Today, we're joined by Brad Ammerman for an episode on hacking. Uh, welcome, Brad. Thank you. <laughs> just a bit of a start here, if you just want to introduce yourself. Yeah, so uh, I'm the manager of an offensive cyber operations team uh, based out of Iowa. Basically, I run a small team of somewhat nefarious gentlemen who gain access usually from an external standpoint to an internal standpoint on 90% of our engagements. You know, we have ethical hacking and we have unethical hacking. What one of those would you say that you do? Definitely ethical hacking. We get authorization from the client. Ethical hacking, obviously you're doing things proper, right, legally versus unethical. And that would just be, I guess, bad actors, criminals, that sort of thing. When it comes to ethical hacking, I feel like it's not a job or something that a lot of people are actually familiar with. Basically, a company will pay by company and I'll send a consultant or assign a consultant, you know, as their lead penetration tester. And depending on what the service is that the client needs, whether it's a physical assessment, a virtual assessment where we're actually doing it remotely or an on-site internal external assessment, my guys will, you know, basically accomplish the mission, so to say. We're just trying to act like a threat actor and we will mimic some of the attacks that they do. Like you mentioned, you run a team and you yourself are a penetration tester. Do you want to explain kind of what that is for the audience? Sure. Basically, we use manual and automated techniques to exploit vulnerabilities on internal and external networks. Usually it's trying to social engineer our way in. And then from that social engineering standpoint, that's kind of like our pivot either into like potentially their email system to look for business critical information or through their VPN. And, you know, once we get in through their VPN, that's all she wrote. It won't take us long to get to what we need, whether it's, again, business critical information, domain credentials, uh, the file known as the ntds.dit file, which is like, you know, the brains of your active directory. It has all users and passwords that are cached on there. Okay. And that's on the, you know, networking side. Then we got like web application side where we'll rip a web app apart or physical sides where I actually physically try to break in. I mean, you, you've seen my grappling hook. So this does go a bit more broad than just online. I mean, you can physically try to break into places. That's part of the gig. Okay. So follow up on the grapple hook. What's in your toolkit? Oh, geez. Uh, 
we got under the door tools, uh, shove knives. Honestly, what I've been mimicking is there's locksmiths out there, but a lot yep. of those tools really aren't sophisticated enough without the proper training. But there are also tools that people use to like get into cars. For example, you got air wedges. Well, if it can work on a car door um, on the mirror, it can work on you know the door of a building. And there's a lot of firefighter tools that I implement, which are entryways that are perfectly legal to purchase. So I put that in my toolkit and that would be like the shove knife, um, the under the door tool. It's a great way to get into buildings from the interior, but you're sitting on the exterior. What are you after when you try actually going to a location? It really depends on the client. I've had clients ask for specific materials at where it's not digital equipment, like actually gaining access to a physical server, showing proof that we were in, taking pictures inside uh, art, getting inside the vault, um, (laughs) things like that, you know, are the the red flags that they want tested and to make sure that we can or cannot get to. And, you know, nine times out of 10, the client doesn't want us to get there, but, you know, they are pleased to know when we do get there because we'll tell them how to fix it. What kind of issues do you run into or dangers that there are doing these sort of tasks when you go into a location physically? Uh, armed security guards. That's that's um, a big one. <laughs> Get on your knees and put your hands behind your head. I've had that happen before. A lot of this job you said is a lot, uh, social engineering. Yep. When you, you, you're, I guess, caught in a way or like you're approached by a, a security guard, what's your course of action with that? I feel like a lot of people would fold under that. I mean, it's definitely within the scope of just being like, yep, I'm caught. Here's my letter of authorization. I'm actually allowed to be here. Okay. Um, But that could even backfire. Look at what happened to those coal fire guys in Iowa. You know, they had letters of authorization, but they got thrown in jail. And I'm not familiar with that. If you could explain that a bit or at least sum that story up. I mean, from from what I know, uh, basically they were getting into, I believe it was a courthouse and there was a disagreement between the police officers and the sheriff and i believe it was actually more of a political thing than anything but yeah these coal fire consultants were detained and put into jail for quite a long time before they were actually released so i'm kind of curious on just the overall laws with it we have all those laws that are in place that you know we don't break (laughs) we get authorization from the client and that's basically our legal document that says yes we can send these fishing attempts or yes we can try and break in if my guys ever feel like uneasy i'll just tell them to end the engagement right there so they don't go against their personal ethics because some some people can't lie very easily to others they potentially could call the project right there do you want to explain what the tax or ways you guys try to approach a client we have covered like in previous episodes you know what phishing is spam hacking ransomware the whole whole nine yards I mean, it's not just hacking for you guys, it sounds like. No, not at all. I mean, like for us, when we're doing phishing, we'll do phone phishing. Um, we'll we'll okay. make f- calls, um, either pointing them to the email that we sent a couple of days previously or just coming up with a completely different scenario to try and get them to, you know, let us remote into their machine or to go and click on, you know, a very nefarious link where they have to enter their credentials and we'll leverage that to get in from the external to the internal. And that's our mimic of, you know, threat actors. Cause that's oh, yeah, basically 100%. what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, we talked about fishing here, you know, and what it is. One of the biggest things that we say is, you know, the biggest kind of vulnerability when it comes to just places in general is the people most of the time. 
I don't know if you agree with that. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I mean, that we like we talked about previous episodes, you know, just how important it is to t- just make sure that your team or everyone you work with is up to date, which is cybersecurity in general. Make sure they're cyber aware, I guess, coming back to the podcast itself. From your standpoint, what are, I guess, some of the biggest things you think people should look out for from a company or just even personal standpoint to just keep safe? A lot of companies don't do security awareness training right. That's okay. the sad part. It's a check the box exercise. So that way they're either fall in line with their compliance or with the standards that are set forth by the board. And that's where it ends, you know, whether it's quarterly or yearly and a half an hour video and maybe a quiz at the end. And that's not enough. You actually need to like gamify the system where it gets ingrained into them on a daily basis where they're taking it home and using those techniques on everyday life, not just at work. Okay. And I, that ties into, the, I guess, the personal that I was asking about. You know, what, what steps can someone like me or even our listeners here take in order to remain safe? I mean, most of the time people like just individually won't be ransomware. Yeah, you're going to have some pretty high dollar targets that might. However, identity theft is huge. And if they can get in and get, you know, information on your identity, um, that's a big black market thing right now. Um, credit card oh, yeah. numbers, your social security numbers. You know, they're going for pennies on the dollar, but when you have 5,000 and put it on the dark web, you know, you're going to make a pretty penny. When people think of like identity theft and whatnot, it's not like someone's just selling a single credit card. I mean, you have, you have lists upon lists of thousands of credit cards that you can buy. I don't know how much they're going for, but, and then from there, it's not like they're immediately going to use it. I mean, your credit card number could be sitting for three years before anyone even tries using it, but it's out there. If you have a device connected to the internet, you're vulnerable. I mean, that's all there is to it. When you asked about ways to protect yourself, there's a ton. Don't have the same password uh, that your Facebook and your bank have, you know, use multiple passwords. Having strong passwords has always been a recommendation by people. Um, I actually recommend passphrases and then changing out um, some of the characters or adding characters at the end, like special characters, just to make it one step further. Do you want to explain passphrasing to, I guess, our listeners here? Basically, think of it as, you know, like, these are not the droids you're looking for. Like, that's your okay. password. You know, some famous quote that you can remember. And then also with the mutations that you put into place or the, the additional characters you add, you know, that you're always going to remember. But the other sad part is you're going to want one password per, you know, every sensitive account. Yeah, I, f- I feel like that's one of the mistakes so many people make, make nowadays, especially in our age. You got the same people for their Instagram or Snapchat, and it's the same password they have for their bank account. As any actor is going to do, if they get one of yours, they're probably going to throw that at the wall to see if it sticks to anything else. And if it does, you're just extremely vulnerable the more they get. 100%. Other things that they can do to protect themselves, making sure none of their equipment has default credentials on there. You know, logging okay. in and making sure that they do change their the, the username and password, or at least the password. I know some vendors, you're not allowed to change the username. It'll always be admin or root. But if you can get in there and change, you know, the default password, that's another layer of protection. There's also okay. using password safes to store, you know, your password. So you have one password that could be like 64 characters long that you remember. And that is what decrypts, you know, the password safe. And you could also have the password safe on cold storage. 
So it's on a flash drive or it's on a USB hard drive. Not on your network in any sort of way um, until it's needed to be used. So going back on to passwords, how easy or I guess difficult can it be to grab someone's password? It's a matter of seconds. When it comes to like cracking and stuff, you know, it's a, it's not a matter of time. It's, I guess, how fast you can process it, correct? Yep, because you're basically leveraging high-end video cards and their, their CUDA cores and their GPU, you know, processors to basically smash multitudes of passwords at once. I mean, I can easily crack an eight-character password in a matter of minutes. I take it you probably have some sort of cracking machine set up. I actually don't know the specs of the machine themselves, but we're using two high-end, like $1,500 video cards. I mean, people I'm sure have some big machines. Um, I guess if you're comfortable, would you mind explaining kind of the whole password cracking? Yeah, I mean, basically you will pull a uh, password hash file off okay. of a network, whether it's, you know, cache credentials. You're basically just gaining access to a Windows-based hash. And that hash is pretty much known. And then okay. what you do is you're leveraging a password cracking tool. Once we get this hash file, we'll leverage rule lists and word lists, or we'll just do a brute force attack or and or dictionary attack to try and, you know, basically break that hashed password. Well, our word lists are upwards of gigabytes. Do you want to explain what the function of a word list is? Yeah, basically, it's just um, dictionary words, uh, known passwords um, that have been identified from the dark web or dumps. Um, there's tons of dumps out there that have, you know, lists upon lists of passwords. The average password for most people is, you know, I'd say under 10 characters, if you'd agree with that. Oh, yeah. Um, on average, people just do eight. I mean, the biggest ones that when I do password spraying... <laughs> I will do the season in the year and I'm pretty likely to get one person that fell for the fall 2020 or summer 2021. And then maybe if that doesn't fly, I'll do fall 2021 with an exclamation point. You okay. know, and I'll, I'll password spray that. And nine times out of 10, there's going to be someone that I identified through my reconnaissance phase that used that password schema. Password spraying. What exactly does that mean? I build a user list. Let's say I'm trying to get into their, uh, maybe not Office 365, but you know something similar that has a login and a password. Okay. And basically, I'll just leverage my user list with a couple of passwords, and I'll send and attempt to you know throw these passwords out to actually get authorization of the device without locking out the user. So we'll do this every 45 minutes, we'll send like two attempts. So as to not, you know, break that three attempt block. With hacking, we have different kinds of teams. You know, we got red, we got blue, we got purple. Obviously you run red, which is offensive. Blue on the other side is defensive. And then we have purple. Do you kind of want to explain things that you guys have done? We just work with the, the client monitoring the network connections and activity yep. on their, you know, internal network. And we'll be like, trying to emulate a threat actor. So we usually launch a pen test first. What we'll do is we'll just start launching attacks and work with the client to see if they were able to alert on it or even identify the activities that were going on. 
And mm -hmm. then after that, we will work with the team, sit down and say, okay, these are the, the techniques we're going to be using. And then right before, you know, we execute, we alert them, we execute, and then we follow up and ask, you know, were you alerted to this? And did you identify the traffic? If yes, you know, we move on to the next. If no, we got to rinse and repeat until, you know, they tune the, the tool that they're using to be able to alert and catch that malicious traffic that we are sending them. What are some of the most fun, I guess, uh, jobs or events that have happened throughout your time being a pen tester? Mine are always physical. Okay. I, I just like physically break it into something. Um, and not even like the social engineering of the physical side of it, where we tailgate or something like that. I actually like thinking like a, a bank robber and, you know, getting into a vault is like so much just awesome. Do you have some funny stories from doing physical jobs? I mean, the grappling hook is always the best one. Um, people don't think, you know, like when they see my grappling hook, they really think I'm going to scale a wall and that's not what it's used for. Um, if you think about places like Boston, New York, where they have to build up instead of wide, they have yep. fire escapes and those fire escapes usually are protected. You know, they don't have it all the way to the ground. Yeah, it might be, you know, like. A floor up or something, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So basically I just use my nice little handy dandy grappling hook and I'll throw it up there to try and, you know, catch it and pull that fire escape down. <laughs> I have used it to descend into places, but I've never scaled a wall like Batman or anything like that. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I think, I, I mean, the grappling hook's fun. I mean, I know you, you handcuffs, you pick, you pick locks for fun, all that sort of thing. What kind of skills do you think are needed for this kind of field? Your soft skills are going to be huge. Um, for social engineering, it's not impossible to be introverted, um, but somewhat of an extrovert mentality is kind of a key. It's again, it's not 100% required, but it definitely does help. Um, and I wouldn't say you need skills for the job. Those can be taught. Having a drive and a desire and a passion for the type of work is kind of what I look for as a hiring manager, because from that aspect, you know, I'll bring you in as an intern or a junior, and then we'll teach you how to do most of the job. So you hire for the person. I, I also know you have a lot of certificates. Just from my standpoint, it's really hard to get experience if you're not a collegiate kind of person. Foot in the door is getting those, you know, certifications, whether they're the low level or the more higher end ones, which are like the offensive security certifications. Okay. Um, okay. I actually helped uh, write the pen test plus and that one's geared more towards someone who's got two or three years in the field. Uh, but the, the good part is, is there's so many free training materials out there like hack the box, Vuln hub, um, just these try and hack me websites. Uh, there's, yep a plethora of them where you can get the skills to, you know, basically challenge these certifications without even opening a book. But it's networking at the end of the day. Knowing people is how you're going to get your foot in the door at the end of the day. I, I will agree with that. My entire career probably got launched from the connections I made at DEF CON. It's a massive uh, security conference. People come and show crazy new attack platforms, uh, new tools out there, new techniques. 
Um, then they got, you know, their own little mini conferences within the big conference where there's like a car hacking village and an election uh, hacking village where, you know, you're trying to hack voting machines. There's a biohacking where people are injecting themselves with magnets and RFID readers and things like that. So it's, it's a massive, massive get together of people who wear black hoodies. I'm not even a pen tester on most days. I wear a black hoodie myself. So I understand. You know, we talk about the typical hacker voice I'm in sort of thing you see for movies. I'm curious to see your opinion on how most TV shows and movies get it. They don't. I mean, so I know the person who helped write Mr. Robot. Yep. And that that definitely went crazy towards the end but if you think about it uh when you have these types of threat actors out there and just a collegiate hive mind like anonymous things like that could potentially happen the other older things like the movie hackers where you know you see this crazy psychedelic spiral of stuff when you're logging on yeah he's like all right i'm in here's everything you're like well that's not really how it works but all right not in the slightest most of the time it's just guys with just two liters of Mountain Dew in front of them with a terminal with white text on black background. And that's, you know, what they're going at or green text on black background. And they're just typing away. That's the real world. And, and in the end, being a pen tester is great and all, but that shows no value to a client. What we do gives the client no value. The service is actually in the presentation and the report. And the report is that we deliver has, you know, the recommendations to the client on how to execute, you know, specifically the fixes on the vulnerabilities we identified and the recommendations if you cannot fix it. Because there are things that are baked into Windows or on their network that is legacy that they, they can't upgrade or they can't update just because it's either A, the company's out of business, B, it's such a business critical asset that they can't afford to have it go down, or there's you know no way to get it patched. So we have to take those types of things into account and portray it to the client on the ways to at least put more defense and depth behind it. Okay. So that way it's less likely a target if there was someone on their internal network. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it sounds like it's a team effort between your whole company. I would say the big sad part is a lot of companies don't think they're a target. And yeah, I, that's the thing. Like, they're like, oh, we don't need this because A, it costs too much. And B, you know, we don't have that kind of information. Well, they do. And they are a target. They're just not yeah. targeted yet. You know, know if you're a target, why you're a target. Recognize your vulnerabilities. When you think of big companies, I mean, let's consider Amazon. Everyone knows them. But then if you compare it to a, a small mom and pop shop car dealership or something like that, most people don't think that, that they're a target. I guess what goes into that mindset is people think they're too small fish in a big pond or what? That right there pretty much sums it up. No Why would I be a target when I only make, you know, $30,000 a month where these guys make that in about 10 seconds? And at the same time, I mean, that 30, you can't afford to go down, but if you have nothing in, in place uh, to protect yourself from that sort of thing, it's what makes you a target because these big companies... They're the ones who are having, you know, countless things and steps in place. I'm seeing um, uh, crazy amounts of school districts get ransomware, hospitals, 
uh, legal firms. I mean, you name it. And these, you know, they're not big. Some are nonprofit hospitals that, you know, they don't have a lot of yep. money and the threat actors are asking for, you know, 10 Bitcoin or a hundred Bitcoin or $500,000 just to get their data back. And that's, that's real life. And here soon, pretty much ransomware as a service is here, but the hacking is going to be an everyday business. And there are, have already been videos of people gaining access into these facilities where, you know, to, to the people that are there, it is a business and the outcome is they get paid or your information gets leaked or deleted. And I guess not even on the business side of things. Do you want to talk about state-sponsored hackers? Think of it like our NSA. I mean, our NSA is there, whether they do state-sponsored hacking of Iran or any other place. Basically, state-sponsored, I would say, is a team of highly educated or at least highly smart cybercrime people or even the mob, for example, are basically paid by the government to gain access into other people's information, whether it's from a spy standpoint or from a criminal standpoint to either cause disruption or to cause harm and or to just make a crap ton of money. You mentioned other countries like that. It's it's a real thing. I don't know how many people are aware of Russia, China, North Korea, the US, Iran. We're just throwing things at each other. You bring up solar winds, for instance. Not many general non-cybersecurity people understand the scale of solar winds or why it was scary. Most people haven't heard of it. They, they might have heard it on the news for that quick news segment before they showed the cute puppies. But most people, I, I don't think, really grasp how big the situation was. Yeah, I mean, to, to give you an example, uh, solar winds is a huge, huge uh, piece of software that I would say most of our federal government uses, as well as state, local governments, and a plethora of the private sector. And there was basically a backdoor um, coded into the software that allowed the threat actors into it and basically sit on the network going undetected. Um, I think right now the speculation is it was Russian state sponsored but you know once they got in they just sat there and basically did cyber espionage when it comes to state sponsor you know you just try to get as much dirt on the other person as you can i don't know how difficult it would be for someone to say go after a power grid i mean they're already going after hospitals what's stopping them from going after power grids communications you know like nuclear reactors those sort of things i guarantee their targets um our power grid is so unsecured that it's only probably going to be a matter of time until the government either takes it into account because as you saw by that gas um, pipeline that got shut down, you know, that's part of the power grid and that, you know, really opened the eyes. I would hope it opened the eyes of the house and Senate to actually put forth some legislation in. And by what I've seen, um, Biden is trying and they had a big, you know, consortium of cybersecurity yep. people go and talk to them and hopefully good things come out of it. But, you know, it's all going to be hands tied because of budgetary reasons, because security isn't something that makes people money in the end. It just protects them to not lose as much. Yeah. I don't know about you. I feel like just for most people, it just doesn't take precedence over a lot of other things when I feel like it should. I mean, think, you know, how much technology is in our lives or I guess used in our daily life and compare that to how much stuff you have tied in with it. I always try. And again, I gamify things and try to relate it to 
people as a personal, you know, identity instead of as a huge, um, you know, sect of, you know, security. Um, I, I always ask them, like, do you lock your door when you leave? Do you lock your car when you get out of it? You know, well, that's the equivalent of, you know, putting secure passwords on something and making sure that you have a firewall and antivirus and other protections on your home computer. Like that being able to relate it to a person on uh, layman's terms. Yeah, no, I got you. Most people aren't as trained or as aware as they should be. Um, So I guess that just ties in, you know, for anyone listening, you know, just be aware with these sort of things. It's always important to do. We were just talking about companies, but then, you know, we were also talking about like power grids and stuff like that. How different do jobs get when it comes to hacking? Oh, crazy amounts. Like there are people who just do open source intelligence on companies. There's, you know, people who try and identify threat actors. And then you have like reverse engineers who, you know, rip the piece of malware apart and incident response. Those are the guys who, you know, go and find out what happened and get to the root cause of how a breach occurred. Um, You have actual uh, breach negotiators where they'll come in and basically try and make it cheaper for the, you know, company to pay the ransomware. If they ask 500 K and the, the negotiator will get them down to a hundred K. Then you got my team on the offensive side of the house where, you know, physical, digital, um, web app, uh, IOT hardware, you know, those are all silos within, you know, the offensive side of the house. You're not just a hacker at the end of the day. I mean, you can get so specialized. Like you were saying, there's some people who I've heard you speak on it before, you know, there's, this is the only person that, you know, who does this sort of thing. You know, it's not just a one size fits all when it comes to this. Yeah, no, there's a lot of niche, you know, targets out there and case in point, you could be an IOT hacker and trying to take over someone's Alexa, but you don't know anything about Google home. So like, that's your forte is you're just the Alexa person. I am curious. I mean, do you have Alexas? Do you trust Alexas and Google Homes and the whole nine yards? Or I have Alexa all over my house. And, you know, if it's listening to me, the, the consultant that li- is listening might have a really good show at the end of the day, but it's not <laughs> going to affect me in any way, shape or form. Yes. Is it weak and vulnerable? It is. However, I have it behind so many layers of security. Um, that potentially will protect me. However, at DEF CON just this year, I met a person who basically said, it don't matter what protections you have in place, they wrote a tool that can take it over. He basically said, watch this. And I watched it and he wasn't kidding. It was behind a firewall. It had some other protections in place like EDR and other things. And he was able to take over the guy's Alexa. What, what's the, uh, I guess, community like when it comes to hacking? Like, do you share resources or is everyone pretty much like, this is mine, I'm not sharing this? It's 50-50. I mean, some companies do work together. There's a big open source community too, where they'll release their tools to the community and hopefully the community gives back, you know, whether it's bug fixes or feature recommendations or things like that. It's, it's honestly a 50-50. You're going to have some people who are like mine, you know, they're, they're the, what the, the seagulls in 
Finding Nemo, you know, they're going to be like that. And then there's going to be others that, you know, try and give back and try and, you know, come to a conglomerate where they're sharing, you know, threat actor activity and other, you know, state sponsored, you know, indicators with either the FBI or the CIA or somebody. So that way it gets disseminated down. But does that get talked a lot at the cyber summits or what? I haven't been to one, um, so I don't know usually what the, the conversations are, but my guess is there's going to be a lot of sidebars okay. and, you know, under the table dealings on, hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So, you know, we'll share data between <laughs> gotcha. each other. Um, it's probably never written in policy or on paper, but I would like, I, I know our government for the most part probably disseminates the knowledge down. I mean, from the FBI standpoint, even students can go become a member of InfraGuard if you pay, I think, the $70 and get the background check. And you can see the cybersecurity alerts that the FBI are sending out, you know, on a daily or weekly basis. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of tools nowadays that alert you. I mean, not not just for hacking, but, you know, just security in general. Um, I think... We're at a good point to wrap it up. I would like to get your top three takeaways for this episode, if you could. Keep that security in your mind as an individual and as an employee is probably the biggest one. You know, implement multi-factor authentication on all your really high-end sensitive things like your bank accounts and things that actually allow you to have uh, multi-factor authentication. I even have it on my PlayStation for when I log in. And then, you know, again, if you... They can't do really long passwords. Just think of a passphrase and use a password safe to keep it, you know, more secure. Perfect. Well, again, uh, thank you for joining us today, Brad. You know, we learned a lot. I'm hoping our listeners learned a lot too. Um, we appreciate you uh, joining us for this episode. Thanks, man. And then uh, we'll pass this off to Mercy for the news. everyone, Masia Yesida here with the news. Student expert on the information security team, I'll be updating you with what's going on in the cybersecurity world. Before I get into the headlines, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Fast news update, WhatsApp provides another security layer for its over 2 billion users. On October 15th, the messenger application WhatsApp announced that it will provide end-to-end encryption for message backups for both its Android and iOS users. When enabled, this encryption protects message backups for its users in their desired storage cloud, like iCloud or Google Drive, with a choice of their own encryption key. To activate the security setting, open WhatsApp, go to Settings, Chat, Chat Backup, and then End-to-End Encrypted Backup. Our second news update, Acer suffers third cyber attack. Acer, a Taiwanese based hardware company was hit with a third cyber attack before it could recover from its previous blows earlier this year in March, when a different group asked for about $50 million in ransom. Threat actor group called Disorden confessed its role in the most recent two attacks. Our third news update, hacker responsible for the attack on University of Pittsburgh Medical Center finally sent us to seven years. The healthcare and insurance provider, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, was hacked in 2014 by threat actor Justin 
Sean Johnson, who also goes by the Death Star or Death Star on the dark web. Johnson is said to have stolen personal information of more than 65,000 employees. Data includes names, social security numbers, addresses, and salary information of tens of thousands of employees. This information was sold on the dark web and used for criminal activity, including 1.7 million in fake tax returns. Aside from this incident, Johnson also stole and sold about 90,000 sets of personal information between 2014 and 2017 on the dark web. And that wraps up the news for this week. Thanks for listening to the Cyberware Podcast. We'll see you next time.